Digital 410 Productions proudly presents the What's the Scuttlebutt podcast with your hosts Don Abernathy and Jeff Copsetta. What's going on, everybody? Welcome to another episode of the What's the Scuttlebutt podcast, your favorite World War II-based podcast. And the first episode of the new version of the What's the Scuttlebutt podcast. That's right, as you just heard Carrie say, this is now the What's the Scuttlebutt podcast with your host, me, Don Abernathy. And our new co-host, you've heard him on the show a few times, Jeff Copsetta. Jeff, how are you doing, friend? Man, it sounded really cool to be introduced right next to you, man. That was, that? that was awesome. No uh, no low-budget expense spared around here. We uh, I had Kerry record that <laughs> shortly, not too long before we started. And, uh, you know, we want to get things going off right. And, you know, this is something I've been thinking about for a while because one of the things that separates this podcast and how the What's the Scuttlebutt podcast is produced versus um, my other podcast, which was formerly called the Waterman and D-Train Show, but Waterman's no longer with us. And so we simply took the name from our um, Patreon podcast called the What's in Your Head podcast, which was based off of a forum on an online magazine that my brother used to do back in 2001, which is also where D-410 came from. So long story short, the thing that differentiated these two podcasts is, well, I had a co-host. I had someone to talk to. And yes, I worked in radio for five years, but I was a producer of a talk show. I wasn't a DJ. And so I don't have the training or the experience really to carry on a conversation in a room by myself. It's very, very hard to do. I think I've done a decent job of it over the last 69 episodes of this podcast. But I really felt like in order to make this thing into a show, to take it to the next level, I really want to have someone to talk to other than just our guest. Obviously, every episode has a guest, but I usually started off with a monologue and some sort of history stuff. And I just, for a while, I was like, I want to find a co-host. And, you know, you and I kind of fell in together over the last, believe it or not, you know, it was a year ago yesterday that I was out there in Texas. Yeah, man. Memorial Day weekend. Yep. <laughs> it was, um, yeah, roughly, well, my Facebook page popped up a year ago, so yeah, it would have been last weekend, but yeah. yeah. And so I'm excited to have you. You have a lot of experience and a lot of knowledge on World War II, and um, who better to join us? We get along great. We've had a friendship for well over a year now, and I can't think of anybody better to help join us and to take this podcast to the next level. So welcome. Yeah, yeah I, really, I really appreciate that. I mean, just Thinking about what you said, I mean, if anybody wants to brag that they can have a conversation with themselves for 45 minutes, I don't honestly think that's a good thing. I mean, honestly, yeah. I mean, yeah, you've done great for the past 69 episodes, like you said, and you've had some really interesting material. But yeah, I think, you know, like you said, let's take it to the next level and, and let's attack this thing with extreme prejudice together. Because, yeah, man, I mean, it's been it's been like you said, it's been over a year now that I met you. I mean, I think I guess the first time I saw you uh was when we were on set in florida and i knew i liked it dude you showed up on set just as really you were just like watching you were just observing right before that first podcast and you show up in p42s I yeah like, i can't dude i came prepared <laughs> i didn't know if they're because i knew that when they moved from the set from texas to florida i was talking to rj and the production crew and they said well it's going to be a very limited um, cast and all that. I really didn't know what the script, because I had no access to the script. I really didn't know. And so I'm thinking, well, if they yeah, need yeah. extra people, to, uh, the term I used was if you need any uh, frame filler in the background, I have all the gear here. So I brought it out just in case. Um, obviously the scenes didn't call for it, but it really worked out great anyhow, because one, those P42s were brand new and I needed a way to um, weather them. And as I've said on this podcast before, I just cannot bring myself to take $150 trousers and go bury them in my backyard. <laughs> One, I just can't do that. And two, it, yeah. it just doesn't look natural. Whereas if you're going fishing or mowing your lawn or cleaning your guns, you put them on, the dirt gets in the correct places, the concaves of your legs. And they, it just looks more authentic that way. And so why not wear yeah. them out there? And it was a hot day anyhow. And you're out in the, the bush and the scrub. And what a better way to protect your legs than wearing dual layered pants. Yeah, absolutely. So, I mean, I guess we should let people know exactly what the heck we're talking about here. Um, you know, we, uh, we were very fortunate to, uh, to be involved in, in making a, an independent film about the Second World War. Um, and like you mentioned, yeah, some of it was filmed here in Texas where I'm at. And then we actually filmed a few scenes close to you or, or somewhat close to you near Fort Myers, Florida. Um, and we, we actually wrapped out there. And yeah, I mean, that was like, 
uh, you you caught the the most of it. That that one uh, podcast that we did that evening. I mean, I can only imagine. You know, I'd only known RJ and Chelsea, which is husband and wife team of director writer, and she's executive producer. You know, I'd known them for a little less than a year, and I got wrapped up to this project in this this World War II film called Walking Point about war dogs. And I kind of came up the tail end. I mean, this is something that the script had been written for years, man. I mean, they, they already had all their cast set and everybody was ready to go. And they just dumped all of these resources into it. And then I just came on like right place, right time to be the advisor form and help with uniforms and weapons, safety and things like that and training. Uh, and yeah, they, they got to, I got to be scripted in for, for a small scene. I mean, it was like this awesome experience. But man, when we wrapped in Florida, like you could just see, it was just years of elation from the cast and crew walking point, like we finally did it. And you just happened to be there and probably catch one of the most awesome impromptu celebratory podcasts you've probably ever done. So, well, not only that, and that's like, like you said, they all, everybody on the cast had a huge, you know, year long, multi year relationship. You came in near the end, and then I literally came in two days before the, the wrap. And so you and I are basically like the uh, cousins to the new stepkids, but they're such great people that they, we all felt like we're all one family. I mean, I've known these people for, you know, before the day of the shooting, they invited me out to the, the pre-shoot casting dinner. And so I was there for that. And then I was there for the shoot. And by the end of the day, um, you know, you just felt like you've been part of it the whole time. To me, I felt like it, I was part of the whole thing um, for more than just a day. Now, Obviously, since then I have been. I've I've gone out to the uh, dog show and I interviewed RJ and all them again and helped promote that and helped set up their booth. And um, and if you guys haven't seen it, it is on Vimeo. Go to Vimeo, look for a uh, Walking Point the movie, and um, it's, it's like what nineteen bucks or something, or even or even less than that, maybe twenty four, twenty five bucks. It's definitely worth it. It's a great. It's th- uh, twenty eight minutes long. It's it's a short film and it's a great little piece. I. It, I was greatly impressed with how well it actually did come out. The score was great. Um, the way they were able to utilize the um, location out there in Texas to make it look bigger than it is and the different angles. Um, I was just thoroughly impressed with it. I think I've seen it like three times now. And um, it's just a great project all together. And you did a, you did a fantastic job in, in your role as well. Man, yeah, I appreciate that. My head was spinning when we were filming out there, man. It was just so many fires to put out. You know, I mean, there's just so much going on. I mean, if for folks who have never been involved in any kind of movie, movie production, you see every single movie. Once you've been on set once, every movie after that, you kind of see from a whole different perspective. Like, oh, my gosh, that probably took all day to film that. Right. You know what we just saw. That was a perfect the lighting, the, you know, everything. And so it, there's so much that goes into it. And, you know, when people say they want to grow up and be a movie star, um, have fun with that because it's a lot of work. It you know, really is. I mean, I have a really newfound respect for actors and people in front of the camera and, and a lot more respect for the people behind the camera because you know, man, I mean, it's, it, yeah, it's, it's a tough job. And, and, and I was just, I'm so proud of it to have been a part of it, but, um, it's funny you say that because obviously yeah. I had a limited experience on the set, but, uh, one of the things that helped me out is my five and a half years in radio. I've been, you know, I've been in rooms with Jim Belushi and one of the Wayne's brothers, and I've been in rooms with, you know, I've been part of a phone interview with um, the guy from Lincoln Park, sadly, before he killed himself, and uh, Jonathan Davis of Corn. I've been sat down with, you know, all these rock bands and been behind stage at these huge concerts, and I realized early on that rock stars are just normal people with cooler jobs. Some of them are super nice, some of them are dicks, <laughs> but they're just like normal people. And so when you show up right. at a movie set and you have that experience of being around, you know, entertainment i already had the built-in um knowledge of pretend like you're supposed to be there and don't get in people's way and so when you do that you're not a hindrance you're not an annoyance and um if you're willing to even help out and work and do and even more that's even better but what's funny about what you say that is since then i had the luxury of uh, being a background actor in two episodes of the Mini series that's coming out here, I think this fall, um, on Smithsonian Network and Disney Plus, which is the remake of, well, the TV adaptation, and I'm sure it's been modified from the movie, but um, the right stuff. 
And, oh, no kidding. And after filming two days, um, while I'm in the pilot episode, uh, it's very cool. The pilot episode, not to give anything away, but the scene I'm in, it takes place at a Naval Officers Club. We filmed it at an old um, golf course here in Orlando. And it's so cool. You go in there, all the sconces they took down, put up like the aircraft sconces. They have like um, late war photos on the wall. They have me in a Navy's officer's uniform. And it's funny because we're sitting there before the shoot. And the um, the second director comes out, because obviously this is a side scene. This isn't one of the main scenes. And so they have different scenes being shot all over Orlando at the time. And this is being executive produced by Leonardo DiCaprio, by the way. And so... We're yeah. sitting there in our in our uniforms and our costumes and all that, and we're just waiting to go on set. And the uh, director comes around. He's introducing you know himself to people, and he walks up and he looks at me. He's like, "Are you in the service?" I said, "No, sir. I'm a living historian. This is what I do. I'm I make you know I wear military uniforms and and this and that." And he's like, "Living historian? What's that?" I said, "World War II reenactor." He's like, "That's a thing." I was like, absolutely. <laughs> he's like, well, I'm interested in that. I'll come back later and find you. We'll talk more about it. I'm thinking, okay, he's just the director being nice to the background actors. I won't see him again. So we do, we shoot uh, the first half of the scene because like you said, um, and especially with TV shows, what a lot of people don't realize is you can have a five minute scene takes place in a bar, but in order to make it dynamic and realistic, you've got to shoot that scene from every single angle. And so that one, 10 minute scene gets shot five times from different angles. And right. so, so we set it up and we shoot the first scene and we're at lunch and he actually comes over, tracks me down. Let me, tell me more about this world war two reenacting. And so I'm showing him the photos on my photos and me and my uniforms and this and that. He's like, I like you. I want to have you back. I'm like, okay, cool. And so we shot nice. that scene and I smuggled out. It's so funny because, um, in the background they have the actors, um, smoking vape, vape pens. That look like cigarettes, but they don't have you really smoking. And the ones um, on camera are smoking clove cigarettes, so there's no nicotine in it. Right, right. And um, so I smuggled that out of there, and I actually have my blue napkin that has the Navy logo on it. Because the set production went so far out of the way that they actually have cocktail napkins with the actual logo on it from the, the Navy Officers Club. And so I actually have that here in the podcast studio along with my vape pen. And then where it gets real crazy, I got called back for, I don't know, it's episode four or five. It's the New Year's Eve episode, and it's New Year's Eve. And on that one, I'm a NASA employee. And so I have to okay. I have to drive up to Universal Studios for um, costume. And the wardrobe lady, she's pissed. <laughs> I walk in there, she's like, that's it? <laughs> um, all due respect to you, sir, you're too tall. I told them no more tall people. You're the last one. So they get out and they measure me this, that, and the other thing. Okay, you'll, we'll have a suit ready for you. I show up for the day of the shoot. I go get my suit. It's a, it's a Ralph Lauren. <laughs> now, I'm by no means a man of means. So this is the first time I've ever, first off, it's the first time with the exception of a World War II uniform that I've actually worn a uniform that's tailored to my size. And it's definitely the first time I've right. ever worn a Ralph Lauren. <laughs> This one, uh, did you smuggle that out too? I wish I have photos of. I got <laughs> I got photos that I'm going to post once the show airs. I've been sitting on them. This this freaking yeah. suit is to die for. I wish I could have smuggled that thing other, but this one episode took two days to shoot because we yeah. had to shoot it at so many different angles. But the cool thing is, is I probably will have more screen time. They had me doing a couple walkovers, like um, as the scenes opening up. They had me walking across the dance floor with a drink, and then not only in the um, the pilot episode, the pilot episode, I'm sitting at the table right next to the principal actor. So obviously with the uh, depth of field and all that, when you watch that episode, you'll probably see me. My face will be a little fuzzy, but I'll be the naval officer with the gray hair because with depth of field, you know, the background's <laughs> always a little hazy. But I'm sitting at the table right over their shoulder. And then in the New Year's Eve episode, for whatever reason, I'm constantly getting put at tables near the principal actor. So you'll probably see me. I, of course, I have like 1958 style glasses on on that one because I'm a NASA officer. But no. Back to the point at hand is after that, when I'm at home watching like shows, especially miniseries, I'm thinking, okay, yep, the lighting rig's probably off to the left. And I'm doing exactly like you said. When you watch TV shows after you've been a part of a production of one, you look at it more as a actor or a production assistant opposed to just somebody watching a TV show, at least for you know the next few months, and then it wears off. But when you're fresh off that set, right. you definitely look at those things in a different way. <laughs> Absolutely. 
Absolutely. So I'm going to, so if this goes big uh, and, and you're going to leave the podcast and I'm just going to be able to say, I knew you win. <laughs> yeah. No one, no one gets big off of a single background role. <laughs> you never know. You never know. There's always hope. <laughs> well, before we get back to the task at hand, I got, um, have you seen the, my pillow commercials where the people are sitting in their house talking about how great the mattresses are and stuff? No. I got a casting call to do a, my, uh, to possibly be selected for my pillow thing where they would send you actually the my pillow a mattress and all this stuff right they're going to outfit your whole room and then pay wow. you but the problem is i have three parrots four cats a 14 year old beagle and a four month old boston terrier where this comes into play at is if they select you they're going to record at your house that was the big no for me. I can't even exactly. I can't record a podcast in my house before seven thirty p.m. So the birds aren't screaming in the background. So there's no way I'm going to have a whole TV crew come and film <laughs> a my pillow commercial in my house. So I had to opt out of that one. Yeah, but I know this audience doesn't care about my pillow or any of that stuff, and we know that you. Well, I know that you have a passion for uh, something here. And so we're going to get right into it. But first, this episode of the What's the Scuttlebutt podcast is brought to you by our friends at At Computers. At Computers has been providing IT solutions for all Southwest Florida since 2004. And right now, they can help you anywhere you're at. You don't have to be in Southwest Florida. You can be out there in Texas with Jeff. You can be in Las Vegas with Gordon. You can be anywhere in the world because we can remote into your computer from our website with your participation. But right now, during the COVID-19, with everybody working from home, if you have a small business, you really need to make sure your network is secure. And the best way to do that is with two-form authentication and online backups. So give At Computers a call at 239-283-1120. And right now, they can help you out with online backups at $0.07 cents a gig per month forever. Now, this comes into play. I have dealt with this personally. This comes into play when your employees download that fake email that encrypts your entire network and all your data. Uh, if you have a Local backup, whether it's plugged in through a USB drive or a flash drive, anything plugged into your network will get encrypted as well, which is why it's super important to have off-site backups. So give at computers a call at 239-283-1120. Say the word podcast, and they will hook you up. And for those of you guys who are new to the podcast and you want to support the show to help you know, get Jeff outfitted with some good equipment at his house, head over to, what, head over to What's the Scuttlebutt? podcast at wtspworldwar2.com that is wtspworldwar2.com click on that beautiful orange patreon link sign up for patreon we have three tiers the first one's a dollar a month second one's 350 a month and the third one is seven dollars and fifty cents a month if you sign up for the third plan after month two you'll get a free t-shirt of your liking not only will you support the podcast but there is an exclusive podcast behind the paywall of patreon as well as exclusive videos and so you can help out the podcast that way. That's WTSPWorldWar2.com or D-410.com. And last plug, head over to YouTube. Look for the Digital 410 channel. Uh, speaking of Walking Point and where we shot that, about six months ago, the fine people at Springfield Armory sent me over their new M1 carbine air rifle. This thing is beautiful. It actually has slam back action bolt. Um, it's the same nice. weight, same length, real hardwood. Just like a real M1 car beam, I did a full review on it, including shooting it out at a location down the street from where they shot Walking Point, and I opened it up right in a Jeep. And so it's a very cool video. Go check it out. It's on our YouTube channel. But um, back to the task at hand, and this is for you, Jeff. And this is the new battlefront, the air front, from which we seek out the enemy, not his infantry or his artillery, not his panzer divisions, but the greater menace the industrial heart of his nation, the foundation on which the Nazi empire and its armies stand, the power behind the German lust for conquest, the steel mills and refineries, shipyards and submarine pens, factories and munitions plants, pinpoints on the map of Europe which mean rubber, guns, ball bearing, shells, engines, planes, tanks, targets, targets to be destroyed. And these are the destroyers, each with a belly full of bombs, and 10 men, like the crew of the Memphis Bell. Pilot Captain Robert Morgan, industrial engineer from Asheville, North Carolina. He's flown this ship across the Atlantic. The other pilot, Captain Jim Varinas, business administration student at the University of Connecticut. Radio operator and gunner, Sergeant Bob Hansen, 
construction worker from Spokane, Washington. Navigator, Captain Chuck Layton, chemistry student at Ohio Wesleyan. Engineer and top turret gunner, Sergeant Harold Locke from Green Bay, Wisconsin. Used to be a stevedore. Besides keeping the bell in order, he covers the sky above. Tail gunner, Sergeant John Quinlan of Yonkers, New York. Clerked for a carpet company, but he quit December 8, 1941. Ball turret gunner, Sergeant Cecil Scott, pressman for a rubber company in Rahway, New Jersey. Pilot to crew, 10,000 put on oxygen. They're climbing higher now, 300 feet a minute. The strain on the planes and on the men is mounting. The rest of the crew, Bombardier Captain Vincent Evans, operated a fleet of trucks in Fort Worth, Texas. Waste gunners, on the right, Sergeant Bill Winchell, chemist for a paint company in Chicago. And on the left, Sergeant Tony Nastow, used to repair washing machines in Detroit when he was a kid. Now he's 19 and has two Nazi fighters, confirmed. It takes all of a pilot's strength to keep a 30-ton fortress in tight Now, formation. Jeff explained to me that when it comes to World War II, yes, he's got a passion for the Pacific, but he has a long, lifelong passion, hence the phrase long, I don't know why I said long, lifelong, but he has a long passion for that of the history of the Memphis Belle, and we thought what a better way to bring you on the show as a co-host than to have a nice in-depth conversation about the Memphis Belle. Oh, man, I, I'm grinning from ear to ear right now, dude. <laughs> The Memphis Bell is is not about ten bomber crewmen. It's not about a B-17. It's not the Eighth Air Force. It's an enigma, man. The Memphis Bell is like what the Memphis Bell did for World War II is like what John Wayne did for the Western film genre. I mean, the, there is so much energy and mystery. Uh, that surround the Memphis Bell, it, it, it has a life of its own, man. It really does. Uh, that's just, oh, man, you just got me pumped up. Oh, man, how long do we have? <laughs> it's a podcast, man. We got days. I guess first and foremost, <laughs> um, how did you get how did you get introduced to the story of the Memphis Bell? Me personally, I was young enough that when it came out in theaters, I actually went by myself and saw it in theaters, and that's how I became introduced to it. But how did you get introduced to the Memphis Bell? Yeah. So, you know, of course my dad, uh, and, uh, and my grandfather, both, I guess I get it from them. You know, they were big, uh, model airplane builders. Uh, of course my grandfather building airplanes before there was plastic resin models, you know, this was balsa wood and, and, uh, you know, doped linen type models. Um, but my dad probably built a model of the Memphis bell when he was about 12 or 13. So early sixties. And, uh, he owned what that, that segment that you just played from the William Wyler uh, documentary. Um, he had that VHS tape and I wore that thing out as a kid. Now stop now, right there. For, I wasn't, hold on. For those y'all listening at home or in your car, wherever you're listening, he's not lying. He's not blowing smoke up your ass. I didn't tell him I was playing this clip. We we're doing a sound check before we went live and I didn't even play that clip. I just played. Uh, 30 seconds from the YouTube video and he knew exactly what movie that was and just me playing 30 <laughs> seconds just to see if he could hear it on his end. He knew exactly what it was. So when he's telling you <laughs> that he wore out this VHS tape, he probably has the whole monologue memorized and can tell you how this movie was produced. But yeah, he's not lying. He, he you know, me playing that clip for him would be like someone playing 15 secons from the movie Clerks back in 1994 and I would know all the words to it. <laughs> Oh man. Yeah. I just, I, I wore that. I mean, I grew up Robert Morgan, the, the pilot of the Memphis bell was probably my childhood hero. I, I think he's probably always going to be, I don't like to play favorites, but I, if I had to pick one World War II veteran that I was just so happy to meet, it, it would be, it would be Colonel Morgan. Uh, they're just, I mean, there's just, there's only one. Um, and to be able to have a nice in-depth conversation with him about the Wyler documentary, about the movie that you uh, referenced, you know, the, the Memphis Bell movie that came out in 1990. Um, yeah. I mean, dude. And you know, it's interesting because when, 
when you talk to people who have seen the movie and think they know about, you know, the history of the bell, because it's tough, man. I mean, there's, there's been so many books written about the bell. Um, there's so many misnomers. Um, so it, it's tough, you know, unless you were there, you don't know. Uh, you, you, Colonel Morgan wrote a book about being the man who flew the Memphis bell. And you're just going to have to take that as fact. Whether anything's embellished or not, you know, who knows? It's his book. That's how it is. But eight of the 10 crewmen were still alive when they made the, the Warner Brothers film in 1990. And there were some reasons for the inaccuracies of that film. You know, the, people love to pick it apart. Um, probably the one that stands out the most to folks is the bell you know, made her, her last flight in May of 1943 before P-51D Mustangs were escorting for the 8th Air Force, okay? What shows up in that movie? Bright, shiny, silver P-51 Mustangs, the, the little friends. You know, when the Bell was in flight, it would have either been early model Thunderbolts or more likely Spitfires from the RAF. And how confusing would Spitfires be for people watching those escort the Bell? So it was things like that, the artistic licensing, that, you know, they didn't use their real names, they didn't want to use their real names because it wasn't about the men. It was not about the individuals. It was about a team of 10 men, a family, a bomber crew. That's what it was supposed to be about. Um, you know, the, the, the movie um, depicts them bombing Bremen. I, I'd have to go back and look, but of the 30 missions, and I say 30 because the Bell flew more than 25 missions, just not always with the same crew. But the 30 missions that were flown, I don't think any of them took place over Bremen. But it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. It's about the story, um, and and, it, and it's just always been captivating to me since I was since I was a little kid, and I uh, I feel like a little kid right now talking about. It. I mean, I, like I said, after hearing the Wilder film, um, man, whew, yeah, well, I, could, I could talk for days. Well, one of the things people got to realize, and we kind of opened this this episode up talking about production of television and and a movie. Um, when it comes to projects like that, especially when it comes to things of Escort planes, um, especially when this movie was made. Um, this movie was made before everything re relied heavily on CGI. And thank God for that, right. because if they use CGI back then, it's going to look like your Super Nintendo games. The graphics would have been horrible. <laughs> and so you got to think what was available to fill that role. And one of the things I like to point out, I had never seen The Longest Day until like two years ago. And oh, obviously, you mean the longest movie? Yeah, the longest movie. <laughs> um, and people, one, they talk about the chin straps on the airborne helmets were god-awful, which they were. But the other thing that stood out to me is if you didn't know anything about history and you watched that movie, you would just assume that everybody in the entire Ally um, military had Thompson submachine guns. The only person in that entire movie <laughs> that carried an M1 Garand was John Wayne, and he used it as a crutch. Right. With that being said, when was that movie filmed? Uh, 60s? ish early 70s yeah, yeah. right around the time vietnam was kind of going on so i don't know if maybe all the m1 garands weren't available because they were being used for training rifles i don't know i don't know why they chose so many thompsons i would assume maybe they had a hard time getting a hold of m1 garands at the time i don't know if maybe they yeah. thought thompsons just looked cooler but there's always um inaccuracies in movies and video games and that's one of the hardest things being a living historian, but that's not only our cross to bear. You can talk to people who are diehard gearheads who will watch a, a movie and then complain about the inaccuracies of the descriptions of the, the motor they had in a particular year Mustang that didn't exist. And so we all have that cross to bear in our particular hobbies sure. and our passions. And we just got to make sure it doesn't ruin the movie experience for us. Yeah. And I guess that's the difference between a movie and a documentary, really. I mean, sure. movies are meant to entertain period. Um, and like I said, the Memphis Bell is a perfect example of, yes, there was inaccuracies, but they were, they were tactical inaccuracies to tell a bigger story. Um, if you remember, you know, when they take off that last mission and they're coming through the clouds, you know, they're still, they're still just taking off. Right. And all of a sudden the clouds break and they're looking at, you know, right up under another B-17 and they almost collide. You know, they got to kind of dive down and pull away. And there was almost a midair collision right there. That, you know, as far as we know, that never, the, the Memphis Bell itself never experienced a, a near midair collision on takeoff like that. But it happened all the time because the weather in England was just crappy. It was either cloudy and rainy or cloudy and then rainy. Like it, it was just, it was terrible flight conditions. And those boys had to go up. 
And, you know, very rarely they have a nice, clear, sunny day and, and, you know, ceiling and visibility unlimited. Like it just didn't happen in England. So there was midair collisions on, on takeoff. You know, it was just a regular thing. So it was just something that they wanted to bring to people's attention, that these were some of the dangers. You know what I mean? So I think the movie itself lends a lot of dignity to, to look beyond the crew of the Memphis Bell and just the Eighth Air Force in general and, and what they, you know, the challenges that they faced. And I love the fact that you brought that out because that is very important. And I often think of as somebody who's read Robert Leckie's book, a helmet for my pillow and, um, you know, with the old breed by, um, EB sledge as well as, um, Mm -hmm. strongman arm Japan versus United States Marine Corps. I know all of Robert Leckie's stories inside and out, but when you're, when you're doing a movie or a movie, mini series, you have time restraints and there are some stories that are so important that the important is to get the story out there, not so much who the story happened to. And a perfect example is if you watch the Pacific, when Robert Leckie is at the hospital and he's talking to Captain Midnight, a.k.a. the guy who tried to steal a plane to fly away, Captain Midnight mm-hmm. was telling him a story about how he was out on a work crew digging a slit trench and they started getting strafing and mortar uh, artillery fire from the Japanese and they all jumped in the slit trench, and he could feel the lips of another Marine on his back who was praying to God, hoping he survives. Now, anybody who's read the books know that that did not happen to Captain Midnight. That actually happened to Robert Leckie. He was the one on the um, work detail, and that happened to him. But there was no reason to film an entire scene, production-wise, to film an entire scene to get that story across when you can just give that story to another character and get the story across because the importance is the story and the history, not so much who it happened to another example right. in that same series. Um, when they're on, um, Oh, Gloucester and it's raining, it's raining for days and they're all getting flooded out. And Robert's trying to walk to the, um, mess tent to do his duty. Cause he got, you know, sent to a mess tent because he pissed off his commanding officer and he's walking through the mud. His boondockers are slipping off and he's falling down and he, he screams, would somebody be a good guy and just shoot me? That didn't happen to him. That actually happened to a character they didn't have in the movie called Red. And Red was at his wit's end. Um, Red was so terrified of being there that he refused to take off his M1 helmet. No matter what they were doing, he'd always have his M1 helmet on. And the guys kind of played a prank on him one day. I think Chuckler knocked his helmet off. And then someone shot it full of holes with a Thompson. And he about had a nervous breakdown. And he freaked out. Mm. But once again it's not important who it happened to. And in that case, they're not going to develop an entire character for that series to tell that one story. The importance is the frustration, the mental breakdown, the overwhelming desire to get the hell out of there that they just took the story and the message and put it in. They made someone else the vehicle for that story. And that happens a lot, whether it's band of brothers, Pacific Memphis bell or whatever. You, you got to let your knowledge not make you a prisoner of your own, you know your own cell because you know the truth. The importance is that the message gets out there. Right, right. And, and you know, it, it, in the case of the Memphis Bell, to have that many of the crew alive when when they made the movie, you know, should should tell people like, you know, hey, the guys that were there are insisting that this is the way the story is told. So let's leave it alone. <laughs> you know. Yeah, and it's pretty interesting uh, it's that you way. pointed out because I didn't even know this until I was research- researching this tonight. Was the fact that you know the Memphis Bell had different crews throughout its journey up until that last flight? Yeah, you know, it's funny. The, the, all the superlatives that are linked to the Memphis Bell, oh, the first plane to fly twenty-five missions, first crew to fly twenty-five missions, whatever. None of those superlatives are true. It was not the first plane in the Air Force to fly 25 missions. It was the third. In fact, Robert Morgan, yeah, exactly. Robert Morgan was not even the first pilot to fly 25 missions. The irony behind that is his co-pilot was the first pilot in the 8th Air Force, B-17 pilot, to fly 25 missions. Yeah, How Captain Vernus, I think. Captain Vernus was the original. Yeah, Jim Vernus. And then Jim Vernus yeah, went Ver- on Brennus to... Was, wasn't he the one who went on to fly Hell's Angels, who actually finished before the bell? Yes and no. Um, he he went on, so he flew the first five with the Bell, and and Vrenis and Morgan, you know, remained good friends, very good friends, even after the war. Um, and Morgan knew Vrenis was going to get his own ship. It was only a matter of time. He was just too good of a pilot. 
so he gets his own ship, and, and Varenis is initially from, uh, originally from Connecticut, so he uh, immediately names his B-17 Connecticut Yankee. Okay. Um, I don't know if it was in that airplane that he did his 25 missions, but he did fly a B-17 called Hell's Angels, not the Hell's Angels. That was the first one to fly 25 missions. It was a different airplane, uh, different nose art altogether, but it is very confusing. You just have to look at the tail numbers when you're talking about the two Hell's Angels, but the one he flew was not the same Hells Angels that actually flew the first 25 missions. Um, yeah, because Hells... Morgan's, you know, when, when he knew he was coming home, he got to essentially handpick who he was going to take home. And, of course, there was nobody better than his good old co-pilot, Jim Varenis. And at the time, it was not – in fact, I think it wasn't until, like, 1999 that it was confirmed that Varenis was actually the first pilot to fly 25 missions. So either he knew that, either he was keeping track – and just kind of kept his mouth shut, like, who cares? I'm going home anyway. Yeah. Or if he just simply didn't know, just kind of get lost in the sauce. I mean, I tell you, I can tell you firsthand, when you're over there, you're not counting how many missions you're doing. You just want to not be dead, you know? I mean, that's just, you're just survival mode. So who cares? Um, so, yeah, I just, I just find that it's very, it's very interesting. Uh, the crew that we know from that Weiler documentary, not necessarily the same 10 men that flew or not necessarily those guys that flew in the bell all the time. Uh, they flew, I think they flew the Jersey bounce, uh, B 17, three or four times. And they may have flown one or two others, uh, throughout their tour of duty over there. Um, sometimes Morgan, sometimes not flying. Um, so yeah, it's, it's, it's interesting, but it's like I said, it doesn't matter. The world needed a hero because the eighth air force in 19, in the middle of 1943, was just getting blown out of the skies, literally. The Eighth Air Force was getting decimated, and you know when we when we think about World War II, uh, you know if you if you think about what the Marines did in the Pacific during World War II, you know they fielded six Marine divisions, took countless islands that nobody's ever heard of, besides the ones that are overdone, like Tarawa and Iwo Jima, and I don't mean that in, in a mean way that they're overdone, but it's there's other islands, yeah. <laughs> right? There was other struggles. There's there's guys that died on on islands that people have never heard of. Um, you know, it's kind of Air Force alone lost more, more KIA from the Eighth Air Force than the entire Marines during World War II. That's and the, incredible. And this documentary came out in 1944. And if if any of you right. are a little um, jaded and think, well, how much help can a documentary do? Go ask any uh your naval recruiting officers from the mid 80s what the recruitment numbers were like after top gun came out top gun <laughs> right and so you have this absolutely you have this air group just getting decimated their numbers are getting lower you're you're you know it's 1944 you need enlistment obviously you know some people think the glamours and in the marines or the army and furthermore the because of the type of work that was going on in the air corps they had higher um restrictions as far as um eyesight you got you couldn't be colorblind you had to you know be have more physical stuff and so they were turning away more people that didn't meet their requirements to be pilots and so how do you get those numbers increased well you put out a movie like a documentary like this and for you young cats you got to realize something this was shot on eight either eight or 16 millimeter <laughs> and they didn't yeah. have a, a you know a sound guy up there with his laptop recording sound all of the sound was actually done post production and the right. the actual crewmen went when they finished their mission and they went back and they're doing their um, war bond drive they got sent out to California to do voiceover work and so here you have real airmen who fought all these missions and now they're sitting in front of a microphone and if you've never sat in front of a microphone and tried to have a conversation like Jeff and I are doing right now without it sounding stilted and you know scripted and to have it sound like real war conversation over the radios for the year this thing came out and the technology and what they're, you wouldn't know if you just watch it, you just assumed that somebody's up there and had the plane mic'd up and, and they're recording a conversation. Yeah. I, I would have never known. I mean, I guess I never really thought about it, but yeah, you're absolutely right. I mean, there's some really great footage, but a lot of that footage that you see of them flying around and they're putting their oxygen mask on, Captain Morgan's putting the helmet on or they're hitting flak. They're just circling England. <laughs> They're not anywhere near the battlefront. Like you said, it's all post-production. Um, but I think it's interesting. And, and you know, when when Weiler, there was something about 
the bell, when he saw the Memphis bell, there, there was not like this, you know, it's misleading in the movie. Oh, these guys are about to fight 25 missions and everybody's, you know, rooting for him. And we're going to have a big party the night before and all that. Like that. No, that's, that's a bunch of hogwash, but you know, hell's angels, like you mentioned, you know, hell's angels was slotted to fly 25 missions before the bell. And there was something, there was a mystique. There was, it was the nose art. There was something about that airplane that drew William Wyler, who, who, who did that documentary. And I, I think there was even a conversation between Cap Morgan and Wyler when he, you know, Hey, what would you have done had the bell crashed? You know, what if, what if we didn't come back to this last mission? And he said, I had plenty of footage from Hell's Angels. I'd have just ran with that one. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know? It's just, it's just a kind of a right place at the right time. But I'm just so happy that Wyler recognized something in the Memphis Bell. There, there was just something about it and not to take away from anything that, that the Hell's Angels accomplished or any uh, air crew accomplished during World War II. You know, I, the Memphis Bell is not what the Memphis Bell did. It's what they all did. And they've just become a symbol for it. And I think Morgan realized that early on, you know. Um, well, but yeah, man, so I don't, know if you, I don't know if you know this. I don't want to get too far off topic, but and I don't want to ruin anything for you. But do you know the history of the nose art, uh, what we see of the, of the Memphis Bell? No, um, but real quick before we get into that, I just want to touch on th- one thing you just said. And I think part of that attraction that Weiler had to that crew was he, when you said he saw something in them. I think the thing that he saw became clear, what, 40 years later, 1980, when they're filming this movie. And the guy said, hey, we're not glory hounds. Don't use our names. Use generic names. Yeah. Yeah, you're absolutely right. I mean, let's say Morgan was a show off. <laughs> you know, he, he grew up um, with the Vanderbilts in North Carolina. He came from a very well-to-do family that kind of fell apart uh, because of the depression. Um, but yeah, he, he was kind of a hot dog. Um, he, he, he would buzz the field. He would, he would buzz the, the uh, flight towers more than once. He definitely had a, uh, he probably had a, a noticeable cockiness to him, um, which is, you know, it's, he, it, it's, um, it's, it's a charisma, really, that probably Weiler had picked up on as well. I mean, yeah, it, it, all the things that came together, I'm just so thankful for it. You know, uh, it's just, what a symbol. You know, and you're talking about the nose art. Where did the nose art come from? <laughs> Yeah, so um, you know, a lot of for a lot of years, people thought. So for those who don't know, I mean, I'm, I'm assuming all of your listeners have at least heard the Memphis Bell. You don't have to see the movie, but let, let's at least hope that you've heard of the Memphis Bell. Um, and we're getting really, really deep into the history of this airplane. That's right. Um, but there for a while, and the and the movie does a really good job of misleading people because. I think the pilot, you know, uh, played by Matthew Modine is asked, Oh, you know, where'd you get the idea for, for the name or whatever. And he talks about, Oh, I met this girl when I was in Memphis on business. Not true. Um, Margaret Polk, who was his girlfriend at the time was from Memphis, but he actually met her when they were still, when he was still in flight school, he was finishing up flight school in Walla Walla, Washington. She was just happened to be there. I think she was visiting her sister, I want to say, who was living up there at the time. Her and Morgan just by chance meet, and it just kind of develops from there. There's just a spark of the relationship, and there it is. So, But she was from Memphis, but he never met her in Memphis. He meets her in Washington before they head. They start heading over, and he uh, – so the, the picture is not Margaret Polk at all. And, and I know she had to deal with those questions for most of her life. You know, it was like flattering, like, no, that's not me on the front of the airplane. Um, the, the picture had existed before. This is not original art. Um, you know, the, the, a lot of the uh, Vargas girls were used as uh, pen, you know, the pen up Vargas girls paintings. Well, this was considered a petty girl. And I, I can't remember the guy's first name who, who initially did it, but she was on, I think it was the cover of the Esquire magazine. What we see as the nose are the Memphis bell. And so it was one of the petty girls and Morgan just, when he saw that, he said, Oh man, I don't know what I'm flying, but I'm, I want that on the front. And before they even got to England, cause even that clip that you played where it says, you know, uh, Captain Robert Morgan, he flew this plane across the Atlantic. That's unique in and itself too, because that shows you how early in the war it was. 
because he was assigned to that airplane. That crew was assigned to that airplane still stateside. And they were in the bell. Uh, I think they were in Bangor, Maine. It was their last stop before heading to England. Um, and he got a hold of an artist to paint a, a rendition of that girl from the Esquire magazine on the front of that airplane. Um, the girl, the model for the, and like I said, this is where I don't want to ruin it for you, but the model for the Memphis Belle was the daughter of the artist, Petty. She was 16 when she posed. <laughs> well, I mean, back then, girls are getting married at 12. <laughs> and I'm actually looking at the photo, the original um, art, and then the picture of the Memphis Belle. And it's interesting you said that, you know, it's an artist rendition. The one on the Memphis Belle is basically a negative image because it's backwards. It's completely backwards as if they traced it or, you know, put it on a projector. So it's definitely not the original because the original one, her elbow is to your right, whereas the one on the plane, her elbow is going out to the left. And then Only on the pilot side. Oh, okay. That makes sense. On, yeah, on the co-pilot side, it looks like what's what the original is, and they, they kind of have her mirror imaged. Well, that and makes sense because then her elbow, yeah, because her elbow is pointing right. to the front of the plane, and in the photo right, she's right. wearing like a black transparent nighty, and I believe on the the bell she's wearing like a cherry red one. Well, on the on Morgan's side, on the pilot side, it was actually blue, and then on the on the co-pilot side, it was red, which is closer to the original. The original was like a reddish tint, um, and yeah, like the name of the painting was something like the one with the part in the back. I'm the one with the part in the back. Yeah. Yeah. Whatever that's supposed to mean. (laughs) Um, But yeah, so there, there is a little bit. And so even when they painted it, the original painting that they did in Maine was not exactly to Morgan's. uh, He didn't, he didn't quite care for it. So when they got to England and they got their crew, um, you know, the, the ground crew assigned to the bell, he got with, I can't think of his name, Tony, something or other. And he had him touch up the Memphis Bell, and that's the guy who paints every bomb on the side, you know, to indicate the missions accomplished. And he, he was the he was the artist, and he really did a bang up job on uh, on the you know the artist rendition of uh, of the Memphis or what became known as the Memphis Bell. You know, it's interesting. Um, right, yeah, never mind. I was trying to come up with the person's name. Uh, anyhow, you have the luxury of having access to um a great um vast collection of world war ii gear and i'm very jealous of that but i take great honor and it warms the cockles of my heart and puts a smile on my face much like the cheshire cat to know that i was able to do something that makes one jeff cop said a very jealous Angry, I'm I know sure. Where this is going. I'm sure the day he saw these photos, he kicked his dog, yelled at his children, oh. and slammed a beer. Actually, you're more of a whiskey man. And smoked three stogies. <laughs> I had back in May 30th of 2019 the pure joy, the benefit, the luxury, if you will. Um, I am part of a huge Florida Historical Preservation Society group down here in Florida, and I have impressions of. 82nd Airborne, First ID, a generic HBT, my Marine Corps stuff, but I don't do Army Air Corps. And luckily for me, um, one of the members uh, named John Bonet of the Florida Flyboys, he's as tall as me, and he has extra gears. And they um, asked me to come out, because I was at an event at this air show already. Um, I think it was Sun and Fun, if I remember correctly. And the movie Memphis Bell was out there, and that's the one they used, as the name implied, in the movie. And they asked mm-hmm. me to join in. And they, they actually, they originally said, hey, you're going to be out there. Can you just bring your HBTs and your HBT hat? You can be one of the crewmen. We want to recreate, I mean, one of the ground crew guys. We want to recreate a photo. And I'm like, sure. And so I brought my boondockers. Because I was doing, um, I think I was doing 82nd that weekend. But I brought my boondockers and my Army HBTs. And I pulled in the parking lot. And John's like, hey, would you rather do flight crew? He's like, I got the flight suit, the the jacket, the the May West, the parachute. Long story short, they completely outfitted me. Everything fit. The, the skull cap was a little tight, but everything fit. We went out there. It was like 94 degrees. And it's all out on the tarmac of this airport. And uh, another guy down here in Florida who's taller than me, he's like 
this poor bastard's like six seven. He actually has a, uh, I think, a nineteen forty three Jeep, and he drove us out there. Okay, cool. So we have all our bag. We're wearing the wool, the bomber jackets, the flight suits, the the whole nine. We're it's ninety three degrees, and we're out there. And not only are they doing a photo shoot, but I actually had the gentleman on, and uh, he's working on a documentary about living historians and all that. So he's shooting some B footage, and so we're out there, and it's hot, and we. We finish up the shoot, and now it's time to go back to our bivouac, but the Jeep's nowhere to be found. And so not only are we wearing all the gears, but we got these flight bags full of stuff to make them look realistic and all that. And we have to make probably the mile and a half trek back <laughs> to our bivouac wearing <laughs> this full flight suit gear. And I lit, this is the first time in a Florida event I ever got heat stroke. I got back, took off oh, all the man. gear. I put on my um, – no, actually, I was doing Marine Corps. I put on my P-41s, and I was just laying under this mess fly on the ground, and the whole world was spinning. I drank water. Long story short, I couldn't finish the weekend up. I, about four hours later, I, I climbed in my car and drove home. I had heat stroke for like two days because sitting out in the <laughs> hot Florida sun in the middle of May doing a photo shoot. But it was worth it because I still have these photos, and they're actually up on our Facebook page. And um, when Jeff saw those, that's when he explained to me his childhood lust and desire for all things Memphis Bell. And I, the joke was, because I'm six foot five, they said, well, do you want to do flight crew? And I said, yes, under one stipulation. I said, what's that? I said, I get to be the ball turret gunner. <laughs> <laughs> and so I have this photo of me crouched <laughs> down next to the ball turret. And then there's one where they had the hatch open, and because obviously you're not allowed to get in it, but they had the hatch open. I put my feet in it, and I had the ground crew guys look like they're pulling me out of it, but I'm like six foot five, yeah. the ball turret guy. Not happening. <laughs> oh. But that was such a great day, and the photos are just fantastic. We'll, we'll put them on the, uh, the webpage along with this episode at WTSPWorldWar2.com. I want to give you a little update. Um, you know, June 6th is right around the corner. Now, you uh -huh. know, it's kind of... You know, you're talking about how there are certain islands in the Pacific campaign that everybody knows about, and there's some that's overlooked. And I think you and I can agree that when people say here D-Day, they think June 6th, 1944, whereas you and I probably think August 7th, 1942, when we landed on Guadalcanal. But hey, that's yeah, just you and I. Right. <laughs> but, um, you know, the pandemic has destroyed all of our hobby. All the, Everything's been canceled, but next weekend on June 6th in Zephyr Hills, Florida at a museum, they're having a, a D-Day living history event. And I just oh. completed a D-Day impression. Um, I've had just about everything for the longest time, but one the key thing I was missing was an invasion belt, which my buddy Art, uh, about four months ago, was downsizing his collection, and he sold me his original one for a... All right, a wow. I'll be honest with you. I got the thing for 50 bucks. <laughs> so that was a no brainer. <laughs> and then um, on eBay, I think I posted on one of my videos on uh, uh, YouTube. I got one of those gas detector sleeves. I think a reproduction off eBay for like 11 bucks. So, okay. That's cheap. And then I got one of the rubberized wow. gas mask reproduction things for super cheap. So now my D-Day collections getting just about wrapped up because I already had the rest of the gear. But the one thing I didn't have, and the reason I'm bringing all this up, I'm not showing off all the crap I have, was one of the things I never bought was the Army um, musette bag. I always had the haversack, oh. but I never had the, was the 1925, the one, the early one, the one that's a pain in the ass to wrap up. Right. And the reason I never had one is one, they were, wasn't the, just a price point, but I, I want quality gear. And if you go on at the front, they say if you're over 6'2, this thing will not fit you. So I never bought one. Hmm. Well, I just want to let you guys know, um, you know, because obviously one of the barriers to entries in this hobby is price point of stuff. At the front has recently, maybe six months ago, I'm not on their website all the time, but recently they just added a new um, line of their musette bags. And they, why, I don't know, on the back of it, it says the JQMD 1943. And so it's the same quality that you're used to getting from at the front, but instead of having that $95 price point of the ones that they make in Kentucky... I think this one's made overseas, but it still has the leather strap and all that. The price point on this thing is like $57. And so if you guys have been wanting to put together an early D-Day impression, but that's the one thing you're missing because, you know, whatever reason, now's the time to buy because I, I got one here. The quality of it looks great. Um, I did read a description. Nowhere was there a warning about being too tall for this thing to fit you. So I'm hoping that it fits. And so... Yeah, I have this. I got this D-Day impression. I really want to break out. There's a D-Day event next week, but it's outside, 
and it was 95 degrees today here in Florida. And I don't know if um, how hot it's going to be next weekend at a museum outside <laughs> wearing wool pants, wool trousers, an M41 jacket, <laughs> a helmet, invasion vest, gas mask, the whole nine yards. So it's, I'm still up in the air if I'm going to go to the event. I really want to because I'm, I'm, I'm fiending. I haven't been to an event since all this stuff started. Actually, the last event I went to was up in Georgia, which was a great time. But it got down to, I think, 43 one night. And sleeping on the ground in tent forty three grother when you're used to living in Florida. Now I know you northern boys are like ah you all puss. Yeah, look when I lived in Ohio, <laughs> I I put on shorts when I got to fifty. I get it, but I've been living in Florida for nineteen years now. I got thin blood. <laughs> and so that's something you guys can well, look out for. <laughs> yeah, I mean I can I hear you. It's just kind of one of those things that anticipation is just going to make it that much sweeter. Because uh, yeah, it's just I don't know if there's an end in sight. Um, which makes a platform like this podcast right here that much more important. I, I hope people have stuck around this long. They got past you or my pillow talk at the beginning, and they're hey. still hanging around. What are you saying? My my <laughs> my my pillow talk put them to sleep. See what I did there. <laughs> but no, I mean, yeah, it, it's it's important. Like I say, it's important to keep this stuff going and keep it alive. And um, you know, hopefully, people will will be turned on more to podcasts and listening. Uh, or, or watching a video podcast from home because, yeah, I mean, I know there's thousands of reenactors all over um, the world, really, probably just anticipating uh, this D-Day uh, anniversary, and you know, it's just not going to be the same. But um, just keep trucking along. You know, just got to keep, just keep attacking, always attacking, man. That's, that's what we got to do. It's like daylight bombing raids. Just keep sending more bombers and just keep – pummeling the countryside until they give in that's that's what we're just gonna have to do with this just just uh weather the storm and when it's all over and the dust clears we're gonna come back with a vengeance and and keep the memory of war two veterans alive man so i was telling you a few weeks ago that i had my i had a line on a uh, reproduction holly liner uh-huh the one I, i'm i'm affectionate and i'll post pictures on instagram here soon i'm affectionately referring it to as the hollywood holly liner because allegedly um, it wasn't made for the production, but it was made from the same molds that they used for the production of the Pacific. And I got the thing, and, it, and it's great and all that, but where I was a little disappointed because in the description, um, in the photos, it looked like it was complete because what they actually did is in the plastic, they put a material texture to it. But this particular holly liner, they didn't put the cloth on the top, so it's all plastic. Yeah. And that's a little disappointing, but I was talking to a guy who actually just created a holly liner using an, an actual um compression liner and he told me what material he used so i'm thinking i might get brave pop the rivets out take out the um the webbing and try to finish this thing up and then put it back together with the correct um, webbing so i can complete a quality guadalcanal impression but i haven't decided if i want to risk trying to do that thing or not myself but um you know it's just we all have those we all have those bucket list items i'm kind of like an m1 helmet fanatic and i just I've had I've I have a few front seams and I just picked up a D bail helmet for my airborne impression. Sally, the person who uh-huh. for some reason restored it, he put the uh the five oh six spade on both sides of the helmet, which is completely wrong. <laughs> you're supposed to have the wow. spade on the left and I think the E logo or whatever regiment you're in on the right. But I do eighty second, so right. that's I gotta get the paint thinner for that and clean that off and turn that into an eighty second yeah. airborne helmet. But um only thing left on my list now is a front seam fixed bell helmet that I'm gonna need to go with this Hollywood Holly liner for my Guadalcanal impression and then my days of buying M one helmets will be over. <laughs> Basically what I do is every time I buy a front seam I sell one of my rear seams. Because when I first started, I just I didn't know anything. I was just buying rear seam helmets. So basically, now I I swap it. Right. I buy I buy a front seam and I get rid of a rear seam so I can get my collection thinned out. There you go. So how are you feeling, All the bud? More reason for people to subscribe, man, and and pour money into this podcast so you can buy more M1 helmets. Right? Actually, no. To be work? quite honest with you guys, none of the money <laughs> I I have done a hundred and I'm trying to do a count a hundred and. I just did season two episode. I've done like 123 episodes of what used to be called the Waterman D Train Show. I've done, I think this is episode 70. I have to count of the What's the Scuttlebutt podcast. 13 episodes of the Fail to Fail podcast and like eight of the Patreon podcast. I have not been paid for a single one of them. All the money we make <laughs> off of Patreon, the money we make off of t-shirts, um, 
stickers and all that that all goes back into the production we got a mixing board here new microphones um so no um if you support the show through patreon through whatever that money's not going to go to my m1 helmet collection that's going to go to uh getting more <laughs> getting a nice microphone out there to jeff more equipment um it all goes back into the company all production costs i haven't took a single paycheck for any of this stuff with that being said i will be honest you know Especially like when I go to Georgia and I do a podcast episode on there, I will buy some gas money, you know, to help to help facilitate the production of the show. But no, I have not taken any money out to buy stuff. Um, you yeah. know, screw it. I'll be honest with you. I've actually taken my personal money, put it in the company, then used that to purchase World War II stuff so I can write it off in taxes as a production cost. <laughs> but no, no money actually goes to me. <laughs> So how are you feeling? You feeling comfortable with being the new co-host of the What's the Scuttlebutt podcast? Well, man, I'll be honest. I mean, between my knowledge and my good looks, uh-huh. I think we're going to make a good team. And my lack of knowledge and my <laughs> kind of scary looks, you know, it's you're the new yin to my yang, you know. Um, I I bring in the male audience. Maybe now you'll bring in the female audience and some other parts of the audience. And, you know, we'll level this thing out and we'll take it to the next level and um, you know, we'll keep on doing what we do. There you go. Absolutely. It'll be interesting to see because you'll have access to people that I don't have access to. And so there'll be episodes where you and I will do a 20 minute monologue and then there might be a 40 minute interview with just you and a, and a vet out at a place in Texas or, you know, Wyoming somewhere. And then there may be an episode where you and I do a 20 minute monologue and then it's just an interview of me and a veteran. And so this really opens up the show to, you know, not to jump on the, you know, we've just been talking about Army Air Corps for the last 45 minutes, but <laughs> the sky's the limit now because um, it's really hard to do a podcast by yourself, to to book all the guests, to track right. down stories, to do all the production, to do all the interviews, to come up with fresh ideas and all that. And one of the things I, tr- and part of the reason why there's more episodes of my other podcast that launched on the same day as this, and this one is because, Early on, I was pushing out episodes just to push them out, and then I realized the subject, and I don't want to sound too oh, delicate, all that, but I think the subject matter of this podcast is a little too important just to push out crap, just to say you have something out. And so early on, I decided I wasn't going to do an episode for the sake of doing an episode. I wanted to do an episode when I had something to talk to, when I had a story to tell, when we had history to, to get out there. And so that's kind of why sometimes there may be two or three weeks where there's no show, but now with Jeff being here, um, you know, now we can combine ideas, bounce things off each other. Like I said, he can interview people. I can interview people. We can interview people together. And so hopefully the show will grow quicker. Uh, we'll bring, bring in more episodes to you and more enjoyable content. And thank you guys so much for your continued support. And like I said before, if you want to head over to WTSPWorldWar2.com and um, join Patreon, that'll help. Or real quick, um, I just put them up. We have the K-Ration dinner box shirts this is the yeah the mid-war design not the boring you know just a brown box with the black font on it this is the one with the, the cute art deco green camouflage uh, we have those shirts up now you can go pick those up i intentionally put those in limited colors i wasn't going to make colors that were weird there's white kind of a gray and a manila kind of to represent the color of the boxes that it would go through in different stages and so there's a reason why there's only three colors to really choose from and a lot of times when it comes to those shirts, the color availability depends on the quality of the shirt you buy. I try to make three different levels of shirts for everybody's budget. And when I go through my vendors, if I when I do what they call the classic tees, they'll have colors that aren't available in the premiums. And so sometimes people get a little annoyed. Well, why don't you have this color in this quality shirt? Because it's not available because it's a different type of shirt. But anyhow, head over to WTSPRoleWar2.com. The K-Ration shirts are out there. The Lucky Strike shirts are still out there. The old throwback um WTSP shirt logos with the Marine Corps helmets there. The one with the airborne helmet is there. And um, coming soon, I'm about ready to mail out a bunch of them to Jeff. To be honest, I have to re, um, re-maneuver my logos. When I do these die-cut stickers, uh, the font on some of it's too small, and they get mutilated during the peeling process, so I've had to recreate the logos a little bit. But we're going to have WTSP die-cut stickers available for you guys. Um, they're going to be like $3.50, including... Uh, shipping which is cheap if anybody's ever bought a die cut sticker they usually go for 10 to 8 bucks depending on if it's a rock band it's gonna be a lot more than that but uh, we got stickers coming soon and all that good stuff and we just hope the show continues to grow and if you didn't know 
not to sound like a poet, not only can you download this show via WTSPWorldWar2.com, but we are on Apple Podcasts, and we are on Google Podcasts, Stitcher, and Spotify, and pretty much anywhere fine podcasts are available. It's come to my attention that these little upstart apps have actually stolen my RSS feed and put me on. So you can even find us on apps I wasn't even aware that we're on. But, um, yeah, you can find us anywhere. Please share us with your friend. Track us down on Facebook, Instagram, and uh, all that good stuff. Jeff, do you have anything to say? Where can people find you? Uh, yeah, you can just you can find me on Instagram. It's my name, Jeff Copsetta. Um, and, um, or I guess through your website here. I guess we're going to link that up yep. um, in we- some way, whatever, however you want to, however you want to take care of that. And, uh, yeah, man, this was a lot of fun. I mean, what, a, not a better, uh, subject uh, title could you have picked for the first episode we do than, than with the Memphis Bell for sure. Well, thank you guys so much for joining us for another episode and we will talk to you here, um, probably in a w- week or so. On uh, For Jeff Copsetta, I'm Don Abernathy, and this is the new episode of the What's the Scuttlebutt podcast, your favorite World War II podcast. Thank you guys so much. This has been a Digital 410 production. <laughs>